this is Mary J. Blige. I'm Nicki Minaj. What's up, what's up? This is Jay-Z. From London, England, and Washington, D.C., you are now tuned in to Conversations with Allison J. The Journey to Hear. Brought to you by Ethel May Books. This is Conversations with Allison J. Hello, everyone, and welcome to another episode of Conversations with Allison J. The Journey to Hear. Today, as always, we have another captivating and thought provoking topic and guest. Here's your host, Allison J. with Alison Jay, The Journey to Hear. I'm your host, Alison Jay. Today, we welcome our guest, Elise Kennedy. Elise is a therapist and owner of Moving Parts Psychotherapy located in Austin, Texas. Elise primarily works with people who have experienced trauma, that's children right through to adults. She also specializes in perinatal mental health and has a passion for helping parents who are trauma survivors. As a trauma survivor herself and an overcomer of postpartum depression, depression, anxiety, becoming a therapist was Elise's way of paying forward the healing. Elise, hello and thank you for joining us here today on Conversations with Alison J. So Elise, hi again. Hi. <laughs> hi. So Elise, just reading from your bio and all the things that you're doing, you mentioned that, and the way you put it is that you mentioned it as being regular depression. So, and in most people's minds, depression is just depression. You have postpartum depression, and then everything else is lumped together as depression. So, so when you call it regular depression, what exactly do you mean by regular? I'm actually not sure exactly <laughs> where I wrote that. <laughs> Regular depression is not a clinical term. Uh, but I think what I was saying is it's just depression uh, without any impetus for it. Like it just somehow showed up. There was no event that led to the depression. Um, so when you experience depression, a lot of times we think about um, an inability to get out of feeling blue, um, an inability to stop feeling sad or even numb. Uh, and sometimes uh, accompanying that can be uh, inability to, or loss of interest in things you used to enjoy doing. Um, it can be suicidal thoughts or suicidal intent. Um, and it can also look like bouts of anger or bouts of sadness. Uh, there are lots of different ways that depression shows up. Um, and it can really just feel like a haze over you at all times or like there's a cloud hanging over you at all times. And so I think that's what I meant by that term, but it is not in the DSM. <laughs> All right, right. So, and when I was um, researching into topics that we were going to discuss and just delving deeper into all of your business, Elise, I was reading, um, because I found your social media page enlightening, very, very enlightening. 
And you mentioned that you have a passion for social justice. And part of that means destigmatizing mental health and recognizing it is built around whiteness and bringing to light harmful practices that surrounds and is within that field. And now that really made me sit up and pay attention because I have always, um, well, I should say always, but since my first introduction into um, the effects of mental health on a person because of somebody I dated and looking and seeing that it was just disproportionate of people of color in these facilities and institutions. So when I read that and I thought, you know something, it's not just in the UK because you're here in the US and you're seeing that. And what actually brought you to even recognize and see that? Yeah, unfortunately, the way that we're taught about therapy and uh, counseling in grad school is very much through a white lens. And it wasn't until after grad school when I started doing my own research and my own uh, unlearning uh, and delve into anti-racism work that I realized how problematic uh, a lot of the things I learned in grad school were. Mm -hmm. As a therapist in graduate school, at least in my program, and I have heard that in the UK it's a lot better, um, but in my graduate program we only got one class about um, counseling uh, other populations. Essentially, it's called counseling diverse populations, and that's supposed to cover anyone who's not white. And every other class is through a white lens, and they don't talk about how to work with folks who aren't white. And that's hugely problematic, because when we first begin our internships, where we're a lot of times uh, so you have to complete pre-graduate internships in grad school to become a licensed therapist. And we're essentially providing free therapy. And so, so often we're working with uh, lower SES folks, and that means we're disproportionately counseling uh, BIPOC folks. So mostly people of color. And the fact that we're sending off new interns to work with people of color when they haven't gone through their own process of examining their whiteness and unlearning uh, white supremacy, that's going to be extremely harmful for the folks that they're counseling. And it could, uh, it could first of all do a lot more damage because we're looking at racism that can be caused within the counseling room. Um, and it can put people off of seeking mental health care in the future. Um, when, when we're not trained to recognize racialized trauma, far too often racialized trauma gets denied or missed. And that is so harmful, uh, both because we might not call out racism in white clients that we see, 
and because we're not giving the proper mental health care to an entire group of people. Like, white people are not the majority in most places. Right. And so uh, the other piece of this is that even in graduate school, there's a lot of stigma around the way they talk about mental health disorders. Mm -hmm. uh, and that's another piece that I found very problematic. And so as I've been thinking about my place in social justice movements, uh, while it's not my place to speak over people of color or take over a movement, um, I really want to highlight how we can shift the mental health field and stand up for that. And so that's my little corner that I'm putting my energy towards. Um, while I still want to really highlight the voices of uh, Black people and BIPOC people. Wow. So for our listeners in the UK, what is BIPOC? Black Indigenous people of color. Okay. So that is not usually a UK term? No. <laughs> okay, <laughs> got it. <laughs> They're probably listening and thinking, um, okay, chicken, that sounds like chicken or something. <laughs> but, um, but that's interesting that you say that because in looking at it from, because I'm not... I'm not a, a psychotherapist as you are, but looking at it from, for example, from a family member visiting somebody in there and seeing all these other people of color in there, nobody's gonna stop to think because that it's an element of their, the recent sources aren't there or it's, there's a problem with how therapists are taught. Because I remember, as I mentioned to you, I dated somebody that was diagnosed with um, bipolar. And thank God for his family, the way that they could not prescribe a thing for him without his sister saying, how do you spell that? And writing it down and going away and researching it and then coming back and saying, no, 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 you're not going to give him that. But you've got some people that don't have the privilege or the, um, or even... They just, because they just look at it thinking, okay, the, doctor's, the doctor must be right. Not realizing, as you said, this doctor's looking at it through this white lens. And so do you think it would be helpful if, and I'm not, and I'm not saying that um, this is even a possibility, but even if they started to introduce cultural differences, because it really isn't a one size fits all. My family background is um, Caribbean. However, you may have somebody whose family is from India or whose family is from Japan or an African country that there's going to be cultural differences. So it's time that we stop with the one size fits all because it really doesn't. And like you said, doing more harm than good. And, and that could be what stops people because... You mentioned to me before that one of the things you're taught in grad school is black people are less likely to seek help. Yes, 100%. I think within the mental health field, they've really gone 
even though they have the one cultural diversity class in most of the other classes, there's really this, I don't see color thought process. And we know how damaging that is in the real world. Yes. Um, like if I didn't see your color, I wouldn't be seeing you. Yeah, and I think that is so, you know, people that say that, um, God love them, because you know you know what they're trying to do, but just don't, just, just done and done, no, please stop, you don't see yeah. yeah, 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 you do, you, do. You, you, you absolutely do. And, yeah. And I'm not saying it is a negative thing to see colour, because it absolutely is not a negative thing, right. but people have taken um, colour and demonized it almost so that people have to now feel defensive and say i don't see color yeah you do because like you said if you didn't see my color you won't see who allison is at all yeah and when i do work with a bipoc client the first thing i say is so by the way i'm white <laughs> and they usually laugh but the point is that I'm naming my whiteness and then I'm saying, uh, I do not know your own experience in the world uh, because I have lived in the world in a white body. And so it's not your job to educate me on your culture or experience, but I'm not gonna deny your culture or experience in the world. I, When I worked in an area that was, uh, a pretty bougie area, pretty bougie part of town. I would have black clients who were nervous every time they entered the building because seeing a black person in that part of town wasn't as common. And so for some of my clients, it would be nerve wracking every time they entered those steps. It would be a sigh of relief when they came in the building. And as a white therapist, I might not have thought about that. I ended up moving my office to a different part of town where I hope it's more comfortable for everyone. Um, but that's just something that as a white person, I don't have to experience. I don't have to worry about the location of my therapist's office because it could be a place that's not safe for me. Mm -hmm. And so there are so many different cultural factors that we absolutely have to think about when we're thinking about mental health care for our clients. The other piece of this is that in different cultures, this Western way of uh, treating uh, mental health disorders just doesn't work. Mm -hmm. um, so in, in many of the counseling theories, we've essentially uh, appropriated them from indigenous cultures, especially some of the body theories. Like, um, I don't, I don't want to call anyone out, but somatic experiencing <laughs> uh, and other theories were really appropriated from indigenous cultures. This idea of mindfulness was appropriated. Yes. And so we're taking them, making you have to get extensive trainings in them uh, in order to practice these theories. And for, for folks who aren't white, 
the westernized way of treating someone for a mental health disorder just might not be appropriate. Mm -hmm. Like there's nothing that makes the white way of treating somebody better than, uh, than the ways they've already been doing things in other cultures. Mm -hmm. um, and so this westernized thought process could be damaging for somebody who, uh, in westernized mental health treatment, we're really looking at the individual. Yeah. And in cultures that have much more of a collective approach to just family life and everyday life, community actually might be a lot more important than individual treatment. And so there can be this very white way of our way is the best way. Mm -hmm. And I think that's another factor that happens uh, with culture within mental health care. And it's, it's funny, you said something, and this is completely unrelated to um, mental health. And I think I've turned into my mother with these random thoughts because she's very... <laughs> So, but something you mentioned about a Western way, and now we've appropriated other cultures, and the Western way was always seen as the way. And I look at it like, for example, with medicine. The Western way is always to write your prescription, pump you full of drugs, and that's it, you're gonna be good. But in other cultures, there were always herbs that you could take, other natural remedies, because now, again, I, that's what I grew up on. Right. And now, it's funny seeing the Western world now turn into all these things that were once um, we were laughed at and called primitive. Because rather than take an artificial chemical, we would have gone to the earth to get our herbs and to get things. Because like, for example, I was told I had high blood pressure and the doctor wanted to give me tablets. So I took the prescription, I got the pills. I, I don't even know where they are now. I've never even taken one of them. However, I know that there's culturally, there are uh, there's natural remedies I could take and things I can do to bring my blood pressure down. And it's amazing that you've got all these apothecaries here, there and everywhere and this herbalist there and because it's, and I'm just like, oh, so it's fashionable now because Western culture has started to embrace it. So now it's fashionable. Now it's a good thing. So now we don't have to feel primitive to go back to do what we've always done. But again, some of the damage has already been done because guess what? People have spent years thinking, okay, well, we must have been a bunch of primitive idiots eating plants and herbs and things from the ground. And so people have got, so the, the effects of whatever illness it is, is so far gone now that they couldn't come off the medication and things like that, so to speak. So just, just you know, to your point about the Western way of doing things, it, it just translate across, it translates across so many different areas. And medicine was one of them that came to mind. Exactly. And uh, I really, really liked one of the people I've been training with, Marshall Lyles, he has shifted his language to any time he is speaking about a psychology theory or anything like that. He says, this is the first person that we know of to have the privilege of getting their work published about this topic. Um, because there is so much privilege and gatekeeping within psychology um, 
around who gets published and who gets their ideas heard and who who are the people that have that have been ingrained in history and it's very likely that there are a whole lot of people that have been left out of the history and they are probably not white men. <laughs> uh, Elise, I love how you are so coy when you're, when you when you're, you know, bringing forth these bits of knowledge. I, I just love it. <laughs> but um, and one of the things I wanted to talk to you about as well is, as well as your social justice in just exposing what we've just spoken about with um, how therapists are, are taught. Um, another thing was, and this is, I think this kind of is also another area of social justice, how you even started your work as a therapist um, in the program supporting girls whose mothers are incarcerated. And until reading um, about you doing that, I stopped to think, and I was thinking, hold on a second. I've never heard of a program that does that before. And I just, it saddened me that I'd never heard of a program that does that before. Considering when we think about it, there are so many, and tens of hundreds of thousands probably. In fact, forget that, millions, if we're looking at around the world, of people that are incarcerated that have children that come and visit them. And how do we support these children? Because listen, let me tell you, the first time I went to visit somebody in jail, oh my gosh, and I'm just trying to think, how old was I at the time? I would have been in my 20s at the time, the first time I visited somebody in jail. And the process that you have to go through and the the f I was just like, oh my gosh, I don't like this. I don't like this. I don't like this. And I was, you know, I was grown in my 20s when that was happening. So I'm thinking, what in the world must that be like for a child? And to be honest, for me, it was just some boyfriend that was short-lived. And I thought to myself, yeah, I'm not trying to be some, you know, I'm looking at it like some gangster's mall visiting him in jail and I just thought I'm not putting myself through that we weren't even together that long because the reason that he got arrested was something he had this court date pending before he and I started dating he didn't tell me at the beginning so then the court case the court went through he ended up being found guilty went straight to jail I visited him a couple of times I'm like yeah this life ain't for me no I'm good though thanks yeah you know, so I had the choice to be able to say, I'm not going to do this. And after a few visits, and especially because they kept moving him around that place, I'm like, what the hell? <laughs> what am I doing? Got better things to do with my time. And not saying that people shouldn't visit people in jail, but it was just a case of, he wasn't honest with me in the very beginning. And I just, yeah. it wasn't like it was a deep, meaningful, long relationship so I just like you know what I'll write to you but I'm not yeah <laughs> so it's like, yeah I'm definitely not waiting so <laughs> and no disrespect to those people that do by the way that was just my choice my decision my preference of what I was going to do me so yeah down. well next thing you know people start tagging me hating me and all this <laughs> so um 
So yeah, so, so to the point of their children who don't really have that choice to decide, I don't want to go and do this. And, and do they have a voice to say, every time I go there, it makes me feel like this. So to hear that there is a program out there, just like, first of all, let me just commend you on even knowing about something like that and being involved in it. But tell us about that. Yeah, so I was really lucky that for my uh, graduate and then postgraduate internship, I worked with a program called Girl Scouts Beyond Bars. And it's located here in Austin, Texas, but there are a few different ones throughout the country. Um, and there's actually a documentary about it called Troop 1500 that was on PBS. Uh, they filmed it in the 90s. So this program has been a around for a while. Um, Girl Scouts has a few special troops. Um, they have one for girls who are experiencing homelessness, and then they have uh, this one uh, for girls whose mothers are incarcerated. And so this program was created really to stop the cycle of incarceration in families um, because families who have a family member who's incarcerated are more likely to continue that cycle and have other incarcerated family members. And in speaking of this through a social justice lens as well, we know there's the school to prison pipeline. And so this is also a way to interrupt that school to prison pipeline. And so with this program, um, it runs like a regular Girl Scout troop. They get, um, I forget if we did monthly, I think we did monthly troop meetings. And then um, the girls also receive therapy and they also get a mentor. Uh, and so their mentor will take them places twice a month and then uh, the therapist meets with them bi-weekly. And so for therapy, a lot of times we would meet with the girls at their school or in their homes to make the therapy accessible. Um, and then we would take care of a lot of the transportation and stuff like that. So uh, they really got a lot of support. Um, and then once a month, we would take the girls to visit their mothers in prison and the therapists would be there to support um, the mother and daughter relationship. Uh, I think children who are incarcerated, or sorry, not children who are incarcerated, children whose parents are incarcerated is such a specific counseling population and it really deserves more support. Um, I was really sad when I had to end my time there. Um, it wasn't a paid position and so I couldn't continue to work for free, um, but I hope to continue support in some way in the future. But these kids are experiencing such a specific type of grief mm -hmm. because there's so much stigma around having an incarcerated parent. And so a lot of times it's a secret that these kids have to keep. So. Uh, people are asking them all the time, where's your mom? Like when I would go to meet with the girls in school and keep in mind, um, 
I'm white and most of the girls are BIPOC. Um, and so uh, kids would say like, oh, is that your mom? Is that your mom? And the girls would be like, no, that's not my mom. Uh, but anytime a question like that is raised or they have to explain to somebody whatever their family has decided to tell people about where their mom is. Um, and a lot of them will say like, oh, my mom's away at college or um, my mom is visiting family or something like that. They have to hold this family secret. And then each time they see their mother in prison, it's the joining together, that bliss of joining together. But then every time it's the new grief of having to separate again. Um, it was a big day to get to go to the prison, like a two hour ride each way, um, and then four hours with mom. And so we would spend about as much time in the car as we did with mom. Mm -hmm. um, and the really cool thing about it is that we were just fostering the mother-daughter relationship. Like they were allowed to just have normal time together to hug and braid each other's hair and stuff like that. Um, and we would celebrate holidays with the moms. Um, but then the devastation at the end of the day of having to separate again from mom, it's that new grief every single month and not knowing when you'll get to talk to mom next, um, stuff like that. And so I think it's such an underserved population. It's really not talked about, but there are so many kids who experience this. And this was just a program for girls and their mothers. Um, there are also plenty of boys who are experiencing this too, and plenty of fathers who are incarcerated. And so I know there are other programs like that out there, like especially mentorship programs, but not a lot quite like that one. Yeah, because I was going to ask you about any, is there anything supporting boys whose fathers are incarcerated? And not just boys whose fathers are incarcerated, boys whose mothers yeah. are incarcerated as well, because I can't begin to imagine the toll it takes on a child mentally, as you were saying, because there's the stigma attached to it, to what they say and how they hide it at school. And then there's the whatever story or line the family has come up with to say, this is what we're going to say when asked about your mother or your father. And so, uh, so the fact that there's a program that supports these children through it and gives them the, uh, the psychological support they need, I mean, I think that is something that should be known about, well, internationally. Absolutely. And, uh, the tricky thing is that most of the mothers who are involved in the program just hear about it from other mothers within the prison and then the mom has to reach out. They have to reach out by letter, which takes a while to reach the Girl Scout office. Uh -huh. And so it's a big ordeal with even getting, getting somebody involved in the program. And one of the cool things about it is that um, which is also extremely difficult, but um, the moms have to stay on, um, and I'm quoting, good behavior. Uh -huh. 
okay. in order to stay in the program. Um, but that is so difficult because other, other incarcerated folks who know that they have to stay on quote unquote good behavior will try to like rile them up and try to like specifically to um to get that privilege revoked basically yeah exactly yeah and so it's really really hard to stay on good behavior to stay in the program and it just is such a testament to how much these mothers care for their kids Mm -hmm. they're just completely normal mothers and in so many of the circumstances what landed them in prison was something that they were doing simply to survive and provide for their kid mm-hmm. um also it's not hard to know because because to be honest with you sometimes and i think society has kind of poisoned us in this sense that uh, we just automatically assume anybody in prison is a hardened criminal yes you know, that is so in so many cases that is really, that's not the reality. That's not the case. As you were saying, there were, there were people doing things literally to survive, to put food on the table. And okay, it wasn't a legal route that they took, but not everybody's able to go and get a job, a steady job to be able to do that because you've got some people that they left school with no qualifications for whatever reason. Some people had to leave school early to be caretakers, to be caregivers to have to um, be the ones that provided for their family so they don't have the benefit of the formal education to be able to get a job to live legally. And, and I think that's where, I think, if we start to try dispelling the myth from that level, yeah, not every person in jail, in prison, is a hardened criminal. So therefore, because we labeled the person incarcerated with that, we therefore, I think, you know, just this is my opinion, it trickles down to the family and the children that they're then treated like pariahs because they have a family member that's locked up. Exactly. And that's why I loved that this program just gave the kids a totally normal space to just be kids and not have to hide that from the world. Like, it was really funny. I'm not sure if this kid uh, really didn't know this or if if they were just pretending, but one of the kids that had been in the program since they were like in kindergarten or something, just one day. Oh, uh, it goes from kindergarten through high school. So it's really cool to see some of the kids who were in it from such a young age then go on to graduate. Um, At what ages does kindergarten start? Oh, oh, uh, in the US, kindergarten is age five. Age five, okay. Yeah. Before that primary school. Yeah, right. I always thought kindergarten was nursery, like, so but here you would call that preschool, right? Yeah, okay. here we would call it preschool. Um, yeah, and so they can be in it from age five through age 18. Wow. Um, yeah, and so one kid who had been in it since she was really young and was then in the 
older grades of elementary school, maybe middle school, just one day like realized that all of the other girls in the troop also had moms who were incarcerated. And they were so happy. They were like, oh my gosh, wait, her mom was in jail too. And her mom was also in jail. She said her mom was also in jail. And I was like, yeah, this is a troop for girls whose moms are in jail. Um, it was just such a funny moment. No clue if she was just joking around or pretending or if she really was coming to that realization, but a really sweet thing either way. Because, <laughs> and so with, so you guys in the, um, this program, Girl Scouts Beyond Bars, is, so not only did you offer that, kind of moral support but was it a case of psychological and mental support that was at, um, offered and given to these children as well and it's yeah the, parent, the mother yeah so I was a therapist I was a, a therapist to the kids and then um the moms got family therapy with the kids um but we didn't provide technical therapy for the moms so definitely the interactions were therapeutic. And most of the kids were experiencing trauma following their mom getting incarcerated. Some of them had been there for the initial arrest or even just mm -hmm. the trauma of suddenly having that attachment separation from mom and having to up and go live with someone else um that's hugely traumatic and so we were mostly supporting the kids um in handling all of that trauma they were experiencing wow and there's something that you mentioned that um brought a thought to my mind and it was and, and it just resonated because of a movie i literally only watched last night where um this husband and wife they separated and the father would go and see the daughter every week and because she was basically saying I haven't seen you for 24 years and he was explaining in the beginning I would come by every week I would see you but saying goodbye every week it was just it just got harder and harder to the point where I just couldn't so I stopped do you think that that could be why some parents refuse visits to their children I'm sure uh because the kids, the experience of the kids having to leave and just crying so hard that they have to leave their parent um, and experiencing that every time the kids go to see their parent, that's really hard to endure. I also know some of the kids in the program would end up opting out of the visits because it felt too hard for them to see their moms and they didn't want to have to endure that. Mm -hmm. And so that's why I think it's really helpful with that extra support that we provide in the program because the kids have support on the way home to like talk with a therapist or write back and forth with a therapist um, to move through the feelings that they're experiencing when they're leaving their mom. Uh, they have like kind of a soft place to land. Mm -hmm. And so that was one of the really nice pieces about the program.
Okay, but no, that sounds like a fantastic program. I, I wish I'd known about this. And especially, I do hope there are programs that helps with um, fathers and sons, because again, there's a lot, don't get me wrong, there are a lot of hardened criminals in jail. Yeah. Right, right where they should be. But there are some that are not. Yes. And they do still want that relationship with their sons. And I do hope there are programs like that that can help with those relationships, especially because you mentioned the school to prison pipeline and it being a generational thing where the um, statistics prove and show that they do have a higher chance of you know, continuing that cycle. And it's funny that you mentioned the school to prison pipeline because I've, um, I've done a podcast with um, Baz Dreisinger. Um, she wrote Incarceration Nations. Yeah. So she and I actually have done a podcast as well. And she talks about it. So hearing you talk about it as well, it just really does emphasize that this is a real thing. Yeah, this disproportionately affects Black people. It disproportionately affects people of color. And it disproportionately affects people who are mentally ill. Uh, a lot more times, um, if somebody is, a lot more of the time, if somebody is Black or a person of color and is mentally ill, they're more likely to end up in prison than end up with the proper mental health care. That's and so that's a huge failure on our system. That's very, very interesting that you say that. It's very interesting because um, we've known about that for a while, but it's not talked about enough that, especially because, um, We've been hearing a lot in the news over the last couple of years that um, a person with a mental illness is having an episode, 911 is called, the police come in, the person's having an episode and they shoot them. Yeah. It's just like, okay, and I understand, okay, fair enough that the person's having an episode and they look, they could be a danger. However, if when the person's calling 911 and they, I mean, I don't know what they're saying, but if they are saying that this person has a mental disability and whatever, uh, why are the police the first ones on the scene? Why are they locked up? And um, I know personally in a couple of cases where things have happened and people, they've taken the person straight to jail. They've been in jail for months before they're seen by any kind of doctors. And then you'll have one doctor says, yep, they're fine. Two doctors say, uh, no, they're not fit to stand trial, but then they'll go with that one doctor rather than the two. Yep, exactly. And the next thing you know, these people with mental illnesses are in jail and probably getting in trouble a lot because they're not getting what they need. Because there was a young lady in the UK, um, Sarah Reed, and she was killed. She, you know, she killed, she took her own life sadly because she actually was suffering from mental illness, but the treatment she received while in jail, she wasn't in a mental health facility. Yeah. She was in jail, they denied her her medication. Yeah. Next thing you know, she's, um, she can't cope with it and she takes, sadly took her own life. And this was just a few, just a couple of short years ago yeah. that this was the case. So it's not even like we're talking about things that were happening pre people being able to get the right, training and knowledge this is something we're talking about that still 
still happening. Yeah. So, you know, and that's just, I just think we just need to learn so much more. But something that you mentioned about um, the trauma and the effects of children visiting their parents. And um, so talk to us about um, children struggling with their emotions, especially because if you think about these children of the parents that are incarcerated, they're now living with an, an adult. Yeah. So, so sometimes, well, not sometimes, these adults now have the responsibility to now look at this child and look after this child and see, okay, is this child struggling with their emotions? Are they displaying sadness? Could it be that this child's depressed or anxious? And also, you've got parents worried about children falling into the same family cycle of trauma. I mean, so how would you help children like in that scenario? I know that was just a lot right there. Yeah, well, one thing that I think is important to mention too about the caregivers that end up caring for children of incarcerated parents is oftentimes that falls on the grandparents who were not expecting to raise a rambunctious child at that point in their life. Yeah, or children. They thought a lot of times they thought they were done. Yeah, I've raised my um, kids. I'll babysit once in a while. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And so uh, God bless them. The caregiver, all the caregivers in our program were so wonderful. Um, and like you couldn't have asked for more supportive caregivers, but they also like had the kids in the program and so they knew they were getting some extra support not all caregivers have that um and so um a child might be having a hard time with not understanding that an older caregiver can't play with them like their parent might have been able to or the child may even be caring for the caregiver in some ways if it's an older caregiver and so the child is then having to take on some parental roles as well um there are so many dynamics at play with the child and the caregiver uh and so there are so many new things that a child is experiencing while the parent is incarcerated uh and it's completely normal to be for a kid to be experiencing all the different emotions. I think about children of incarcerated parents going through a similar cycle of grief. Like we think about uh, the grief cycle as having like anger, denial, um, all the different emotions. Uh, and with a child of an incarcerated parent, their grief cycle kind of starts over every time they're, every time they visit the parent. And then they go through a different grief cycle when they're then reunited with the parent. Um, the reunification can be really difficult on a, chi a child-parent relationship too because a lot of times a parent is coming out of prison with very little support. Um, typically, uh, 
most people gain more weight in prison and so their clothes don't fit and they don't have access to new clothes. A lot of times like the moms are coming out of prison without access to even a bra and underwear. And so, yeah. And so they're, they're not having their basic needs met for- Oh, sorry. For, oh, sorry. How is that possible? Well, I'm just saying because a lot of times they've gained more weight and so the clothes they went in there with might not fit, but yeah. Okay, well, that, that, yeah. That, is, that is actually quite startling, so they could actually, well, okay. Yes, and, and then they haven't been making money while they're in prison and so uh, they then are coming out with no job um, they might have access to housing if staying with a family member or something like that. But when a parent is coming out of prison, as excited as they will be to see their kid and be with their kid again, they also have their basic needs that are not going to be taken care of right away. And so while a kid has probably been dreaming about what the reunification will be like, when the parent gets out of prison, it looks very different from that when they actually meet. Like some of our kids would make lists of activities to do with the parents and stuff like that. And it's just not that simple. Wow. And so it's just managing the emotions of that child and the mental state. Yeah, so some of the kids actually have a bigger struggle when the parent is released from prison because it's such it's such a shakeup in their world. Um, and so that can feel so overwhelming for a little kid. And not just a little child. I just think it just could be so overwhelming, especially if a parent has been incarcerated during... Um, the time of a child going through adolescence and yes. then all of these changes yes. emotionally outside of the parent being incarcerated going on with this child as well. So, yeah. But, so it's like the parent has come out to a child, a very different person, because this is now a person. Exactly. Uh there's an incredible book that was written in the 90s that I think is called Imaginary Family. And a journalist stayed with um, this, uh, she, she stayed with the, a few members of a family. Um, all of them were mothers and it focused around one specific mother who was incarcerated when her child was a baby. Um, and there's this really powerful paragraph about when the mother is released from prison. Um, I think she's, her child is about to have her quinceanera, um, which is a celebration for um, Latinx children when they turn 15. Um, and the mother... Latinx equivalent of a bar mitzvah. Uh, yes, exactly. Um, and so the mother buys balloons for the child, um, but she buys balloons that the child liked when she was like four, three or four when the mother left for prison. Um, and I think that's just such a powerful image of really the 
children can go through from childhood to adolescence. Mm, wow, and, and just, so part of what you do is work with the child struggling with, to manage their emotions and making sure they don't fall into a state of depression because if children, and so let me ask you this, it's just a thought that just came to me. Um, so when you're working with children, when they're struggling with their emotions and because they don't know how to process um, sadness, depression, anxiety, and all that is happening to them and around them with their world crumbling down. Because you've got some adults that become basket cases when their world starts to crumble, right? Much yes. less than a child. Yes. So, so if, a, what, if a child starts to suffer from depression and anxiety and, and, the, and psychologically the effects of this kind of trauma, are they more likely to carry that into adulthood? Can I take a bathroom break really quick? Absolutely. <laughs> hold on one sec, but I, I'll hold the question in mind. I'll be right back. If children are given support um, for what they're experiencing in childhood, they may not carry it into adulthood. Mm -hmm. um, and they're also a lot more likely to know how to seek support as an adult. Uh, the problem is while, at least in the US, most schools have school counselors, mm -hmm. um, access to counseling is really not great for the communities who most need access to it. Um, Therapy is pretty pricey and pretty inaccessible. Uh, while there are a lot of agencies that provide mental health care, a lot of times parents won't know to seek it to their, for their kids until it's a very desperate situation, um, until they're really recognizing a big hindrance on the life of the child or on the life of the family. Um, and so that could be like the child expressing suicidal thoughts or having tantrums that become violent. Mm -hmm. um, we're not as likely to recognize the subtleties in a child that tell us that the child might need support. Um, and also we don't think about that for children um, when they're experiencing anxiety or depression um, or anything else that may be happening for them, it doesn't look the same in a child as it looks for an adult. Mm. And so when we see a child having, like displaying big behaviors, like big displays of anger, big tantrums, that could be the child's way of trying to cope with whatever is happening within their mental health. Um, it just doesn't look quite the same in children as it does in adults. And so a lot of times we don't know what to look for and it's easy to miss it. Mm. And it's interesting that you say that because we, when we see tantrums or when we see these big explosions in behavior, I don't know if 
I recall ever paying attention to it other than getting frustrated, like, can you just pack it in? <laughs> can you just? And not stop stopping to think that, okay, what's going on? Why? What, what is going on with you? What, what, just, and, and also taking the patience and the time to understand that even though you ask that question, as a child, they may not even be able to articulate what it is. Something because if you think about it, like um, again going back to this movie I watched yesterday, I don't even remember the name of it. <laughs> Never heard of it before. <laughs> Literally, I was doing some research into something, and I just had this Netflix thing pop up, and you know what it's yeah. like. I've never heard of it. It's a comedy. Click on that. I need a laugh. Yeah. And so um, she was getting married. And she walked down the, <laughs> it's hilarious. She went to walk down the aisle and they're there all smiling at each other. It's just like, ah, oh, the time has come. And um, he went to say his vows and he's like, I can't, I can't do this. I, I, I can't. So they went off to the side and spoken about, spoke about it. She ran off. Then she went into work the very next day. And everybody she well, you know she that she and she looked great by the way she had this popping lipstick on and it was like okay and then she walked in had a client meeting i think she was like an advertising executive or whatever had this client meeting went back into her office and everybody's yabbering away yabbering away she opened her laptop and on her laptop screensaver was a picture of her and the guy that just jilted her and this woman had a full-on meltdown. I'm talking through the laptop, cleared everything off the table, broke everything and all the rest of it. And I say that to say, as a grown woman, if she had a meltdown like that and she's able to use her words and articulate because grown woman, she, was a, she would have been like married the day before, how much more so would it be, is it difficult for a child to be able to articulate that. Because if an adult did that, we would know something was wrong. Right. And yeah. thing, we, because if, if I'm at work, and it had, in fact, it has happened to me before, <laughs> oh my God, I work <laughs> somewhere, and, um, and I remember everybody's names and I'm not gonna out them. So, but there was a guy that sat to my right, went down the other end of the office. He was a commission, I mean, if I put this out there, everybody's gonna know who these people are now. He was a commissioning editor and she was a designer. He went down and they worked together because she was designing the work he had commissioned. Yeah. And she had a full on meltdown, threw stuff at him. Next, and I'm here, I'm sitting, and where I was sitting, because where I would sit, because of my job, I was able to see the entire department of 35 people. And I remember I, I looked up, saw a commotion heading, going on down there, dropped what I was doing, because this is it's not the kind of thing that normally happened. Right. And girlfriend was having a full <laughs> meltdown. So he went back to his desk, a little bit shaken. So I'm, so I'm like, diffused the whole situation. So I went back to him and said, um, what happened? And he told me what he said to her. So I'm thinking, okay, I don't see what there is in that that would have caused that reaction. And I kind of like, you sure that's all he said? Just, just, I just want to be sure. And he said, Alison, I could have asked her for cheese. 
And this is something that happened more than 15 years ago, by the way, and I remember it clearly like it happened yesterday. His exact words were, Alison, I could have asked her for cheese. I think I would have gotten the same reaction. <laughs> um, so yeah, having said that, we knew, okay, something was wrong with her. Right. She needed, she needed to either take some time, go and get some help, go and do something. Same with the movie I watched yesterday, full meltdown, demolished everything that was on her desk, something's wrong, need to seek help. But yet, when it's a child, we're like, pack it in, but hey, you wait till I get you home. Yes, a lot of times with a child, we go to uh, it being bad behavior or, um, and I think when we go to that, a lot of times it's because we are seeing the child as a reflection of us. And actually children are little people with their own minds. And uh, they're, there's usually something that is underlying the behavior. So I have a five-year-old and a two-year-old. And the other day, so we started virtual school this week. My, my five-year-old is in kindergarten. And uh, she just started having a fit after the school day was over. Um, and she just started crying like, uh, first she was kind of doing the thing where she made her body a wet noodle and like wouldn't move and I was like mom we gotta go take our bath like let's go let's go upstairs um, and she just wasn't listening uh, she started doing other things that were misbehavior um, and then eventually it ended in tears and when I stayed with her while she was crying and really tried to understand what was happening, she started saying that she missed her old school and she missed her old teachers and she missed all her friends. And knowing that as a kid, she doesn't have as many tools to figure out what her feelings are. And so she probably didn't even know right away that that was what she was experiencing. She probably had a big bout of sadness after the day was over and turning her body into a wet noodle was her way of letting me know like, hey, I need some connection. I need you to pick me up and carry me to the bath because I'm not moving. And when I got to the bottom of it, I was able to comfort her and talk to her and have some time to connect and so if we understand the way that children, what the behaviors are displaying and take the time to like pause with our kids and figure out what's underneath the behavior, mm -hmm. um, we're a lot more able to help them through their emotions because as parents, we also have to be the emotion coaches for our kids. Yeah which is crazy because a lot of us still struggle with our own emotions. Um, but our kids don't know what those emotions are until we help them name it and help them understand. Um, and I also realized that I'm speaking in the privilege of being a white parent. And so for parents of kids of color, um, like if my kid has a meltdown in Target, I would probably be 
safe and I could be with her to work through that. I want to acknowledge that that's not the same for parents of color. And so there are other parenting strategies that have to be adapted. Um, and I'm speaking from the privilege of being a white parent, but this incident in particular happened at home. So there was no rushing us out of target. <laughs> and, and you know, to your point, you're saying that about, um, as a child, she just knew she was feeling this sadness and it's not until you talked her through it. But even as adults, if you think, cause I know there's times when I've been, okay, where did that come from? It, so there's been something that has manifested, but I don't know where it came from until it, and I didn't realize it was building up to anything until the manifestation of the behavior. And then when the behavior came out, I had to then take several, um, steps back to say, okay, where did that even come from? So again, if adults have to still go through that process and we have the tools of vocabulary to be able to say, okay, let me stop, then obviously a child still not doing that. And you've just really highlighted something for me in thinking, because I never really paid much attention to a child having a tantrum as a way of something's going on and they can't process or get it out. It was literally a case of, you need to pack that in and you need yeah. to pack it in now. Yes. <laughs> and uh, a lot of times we don't think about that the brain does not finish developing until about the age of 26 to 28. I was going to say, you sure about that? I'm going to say till ever, that the brain doesn't finish developing until ever. <laughs> and <laughs> the last part of the brain to finish developing is the frontal lobes, which are our impulse control. And so when we think about kids and we think about teens, it's no wonder that they're going with their impulses and we have to help guide them and have an understanding that um, the emotional part of their brain and the thinking part of their brain are so disconnected. And so sometimes, and so when, when an emotion is happening, they're a lot more likely to go with the emotional part of their brain. Mm. And it's up to us as parents to help them connect that with the thinking part of their mm. brain. Yeah, because I was just thinking that, you know, you look at it and so many times people are driven by emotion rather than logic. Yes. And, and, I, and I look at that and, um, I, and I've seen that experience in my own life and people around me where, because I was having a conversation about a week or so ago, we were talking about people who live their lives led by their feelings. Yeah. And they're just like, well, I'm not feeling it. And I'm not feeling it. <laughs> okay. Um, it's like, okay, um, forget that. Because I remember, um, to be very transparent here, I, was, I went through that with my ex-husband. Everything, it was like, yeah, but I'm not feeling it. I'm just not feeling it. I'm like, forget about what you're feeling. What about the commitment you made? Because yeah. you're fickle. Because my thing is like, you know what? Today, I didn't feel like wearing clothes. But I'm coming on a podcast, so guess what? <laughs> to put on some clothes do, do you know what I mean and yeah 
And so you can't always go by how you feel. Sometimes, yes, because those feelings are there as an indicator. I firmly believe that. So, and you should explore those feelings and look, okay, is this feeling real or is this feeling not? Because sometimes, you know, your feelings can be a bit of a premonition of something and you just, you're wise with what you do with that. But you've got some people that completely live their life on how they feel and in the case of this it's like yeah but i'm not feeling it you know i'm just not feeling it it's you know it's not coming natural i'm not feeling it i'm like okay there are two people that got married later in life um still there's a lot of learning and unlearning and you're just going to go by how you feel because it's not coming naturally as opposed to so you've got people that go by how they feel rather than go by what is right and exactly. So, so, so you to say that, that, that the emotional part and the logical part are so disconnected, you'd be surprised at how many people in there. So I know you said that it doesn't finish developing until 26, but how many people in life till they die 120 years old, you know, like they're old like Moses and they still haven't connected the logic and the emotion to be able to make sound decisions because you know think about it there are some older people that they make some decisions and you really have to kind of like raise your eyebrow like wait what yeah why would you do that because again it's the development and the realizing that connection because i find people that only go by how they feel and their emotions they're like roller coasters like a bit all over the place rather than stopping to think, okay, logically and soundly, what is happening here? Yeah, our, the US is being run by somebody like that. <laughs> I'm, I'm just gonna sit on some tea, okay, Elise? Just gonna have some tea here. Everything you're saying is really reminding me of someone. Yeah. <laughs> Listen, I was just talking about my ex-husband and he's not that, <laughs> or he's not him, I should say. <laughs> that is funny though. <laughs> but yeah, but exactly to your point, right? So it's, so even though you, you, you know, you were just saying that, that development at 26, hold on, we're talking about like, do is what, 70? Something like that. They never. They just, yeah. Everything is a knee-jerk, emotional, response reaction so if we have and so again if we have that in adults we really i think we really need to stop and pay attention to when children are acting out don't get me wrong you've got some kids that just play back yeah back out there because you do you've just got some children that are just like you know something if these were the days when you could still give a child a whooping and be safe your name would be all over one. <laughs> <Yes>. <laughs> but for the most part, if we look at children that are not like that, that then have a meltdown or whatever, we need to start paying. We need to start paying attention because, I mean, correct me if I'm wrong, if we don't and all we do is um, when, they haven't, when they're having those moments, when it's just met with um, discipline, are we not teaching them to start to suppress emotions and suppress feelings? Exactly. Um, and if you think about even more like children who have experienced some type of trauma, um, 
they're going to be even more disconnected from their emotions and their behaviors could be because of um, trauma triggers that are happening. Mm. And so I think this goes back to the type of support that we need like in schools, um, like more trauma-informed approaches to teaching, um, understanding of that not every child is coming from a secure home life and behaviors coming up in the classroom too uh, aren't necessarily just a kid acting out or being a bad kid. And so having um, teachers with more understanding around what a child's behavior could be um, signifying, I think is also really important. Mm. And something that you're saying there about children suffering from trauma, because so, what I wanted to ask you again is the effects of trauma on the brain and the body. Because a lot of the times when we're looking at, like as a stress management therapist, I know what trauma does to the body. So what stress, right. I should say, what stress does to the body. But we don't stop. It's, it's like we have this um, disassociation. We look at stress as being something that will harm you um, physically because, you know, right. stress kills, right? And we look at trauma as something that affects you mentally, not realizing that both stress and both trauma affect you mentally and physically. We need to actually make that connection and stop disassociating them. Yeah, exactly. And like I had said to you before, um, there's a reason why it's called post-traumatic stress disorder. And I'm sure the way that we think about things, both as a stress management therapist and as a trauma therapist are so similar. Mm. Um, but one way that we can really visibly see how trauma affects, uh, affects the body is the adverse childhood experiences scale. Um, and so this was developed by Nadine Burke, um, who I'm almost positive, but I don't want to get this wrong. Uh, but I'm pretty sure she is the Surgeon General now of California. Um, and so she has, she was originally a pediatrician and studied a lot about um, trauma because she was noticing a lot of children that were coming to her for health problems had experienced a lot of trauma. And so she developed the Adverse Childhood Experiences Scale as a display of how trauma in childhood can affect you into adulthood. Um, and so on the scale, it has everything from um, like, if, if a child has experienced divorce, if a child has experienced um, an incarcerated parent, if a child is around parents who smoke or use drugs, um, and the more items that fit for you, the higher your rating on that scale. Um, and 
the higher your rating on that scale, the more likely you are to experience health conditions uh, as an adult. Mm. Um, I just looked it up. It is Nadine Burke Harris. Nadine Burke Harris. Thank you. Got a couple of books: The Deepest Well and Toxic Childhood Stress. Yes, which are both incredible books um, that I highly recommend uh, for learning more about this. Um, yeah, because it says um, toxic childhood stress, the legacy of early trauma and how to heal. Mm. Yeah. Uh, she's incredible and has been such a huge advocate um, for healing childhood trauma. She also has a great TED talk as well. Mm. Um, but so she's one of the leaders in looking at specifically how childhood trauma can affect the body physically. Um, and then we also think about, so the reason trauma affects the body uh, is because uh, when we experience a trauma, it isn't the event that is the trauma. It's our body's response to the event. And so uh, our body and brain jump into action to try to protect us when we're experiencing a traumatic event. Um, so our brain scans for threat, for outside threat, about four times a second, but probably more. Oh, wow. And so if our brain registers that there is outside threat, our nervous system jumps into action to protect us. And so we'll go into fight, flight, or freeze mode. Um, now, when we go into fight, flight, or freeze mode, our thinking brain goes offline and we are just acting from animal instinct. So this is the exact same thing that would happen um, like if a, we think about like if you ever see a deer um, with a predator come up behind them, first the deer will freeze typically and then they'll run. And so that's freeze and then um, flight. The same thing happens for us as humans. So this has been happening since the days of cavemen. Um, this is the same response we would have if a bear came upon us. Um, back in those days, we might've uh, hit him with a spear if a bear came upon us. That would be dinner as well, right? Exactly. And also probably uh, our winter wear. Um, <laughs> So when a traumatic event happens, your body reacts in the same way as if a bear was coming upon you. Mm. Now, because the thinking brain is offline, the trauma registers in your body and in your nervous system, but it's disconnected from the actual memory of the event. So we're not holding an explicit memory of the event. We're holding the, the memory of the event in our body. And in holding it in our body, our nervous system is making sure that event never happens again. Right. So for example, um, you may hear the word uh, trigger a lot. Mm -hmm. um, and following a trauma, 
any information that we receive that feels like the trauma, that can be a trigger. And it's called a trigger because it's the same thing. It launches our nervous system into action. And so the symptoms we experience when we experience PTSD um, are our body's way of making sure that event doesn't happen again. It's a protection. So, oh yeah, go ahead. No, 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 finish, because I think I'm gonna change it. Oh, yeah. So So our body, if our body perceives, again, like your brain will be searching for threat and following a trauma, your brain is more likely to perceive threat. Um, so for example, I in my 20s, I had a series of traumas happen. Um, but one of the traumas I experienced was I was held at knife point and somebody stole my purse. And so every time I would have to walk my dog at night, I was terrified because I was with my dog when this happened too. And so um, I was on high alert. Every time I walked my dog, I would be looking over my shoulder. um, And if I- called jumpy. Yeah. Uh And if anybody was in my periphery, um, my body would freeze just like it did when I was held at knife point. Um, and that was my body's way of making sure like this isn't going to happen to us again. Um, even though logically we know freezing is probably not the best response and the PTSD survivors guilt of like, I could have done better. Mm -hmm. Um, but for a very long time, I was very hypervigilant because I was making sure that that type of trauma wouldn't happen to me again. And so my nervous system was protecting me. So could that have been then, so when we're talking about the effects of the, of the body then, so physically that made you tense. Exactly. So therefore that put pressure on organs and things like yes. that. So that was the physical manifestation of that trauma. And also, um, when we experience trauma, um, chemicals are released to to help us uh, to help us jump into action. So, like cortisol is one of the chemicals that's released during trauma. And actually, um, high cortisol levels are passed down through generations. So when we think about the effects too of intergenerational trauma, um, for those of us whose families have endured trauma through generations, um, there's a higher cortisol level, which also leads to different health conditions um, and even can just lead to having more anxiety. Hmm. That's interesting that you should say that, interesting. Because what I was going to ask you when you were talking about the body's response to trauma is that, um, so then your nervous system like kind of kicks in, protecting you. And then, so could that then lead to some people then having a lack of feelings? And I'm not just talking about physically, 
um, just lack of feelings where we there's some people that we could then look at and interpret them as being cold or disconnected or cut off is that is that another way of just dealing with the trauma it's not that they don't want to deal with it it's not that they intend to be cold but in order to making but having that complete disconnect almost is just their nervous system and their body's way of saying that I'm just not having to relive it or go through that trauma. And is that even healthy though? So here's the thing. Because the way that our nervous system protects us from enduring future trauma or dealing with the trauma that we experienced, um, our nervous system will go to the best way that it knows how to protect us. And so I consider it healthy, no matter the way your nervous system chooses, mm -hmm. because that's the best way that you know how to cope at that time. Right. And so uh, if, if you have to numb out, or uh, if sometimes you have the experience of feeling like you're not in your body, that's your brain's way of protecting you from overwhelm. And so in the therapy world, we always say, um, don't replace a coping tool until you have a comfortable tool to replace it with, even wow. if it's a coping tool that feels unsafe um, like self-harm or medicating with drugs or alcohol. Um, because if you go to replace it too soon, the overwhelm will happen and your body will be in distress. Right. So that's why it's so important when you're looking to heal past trauma that you work with a therapist that specializes in it. Um, because the therapist, like, I always love really affirming my clients and letting them know that what's happening for them is actually a really normal way to deal with the immense amount of trauma that they've experienced. Right, right. So, so, um, so to tell somebody to just snap out of it, don't be so negative. That's just because to be honest with you, when I hear people say stuff like that, I'm just like, um, okay. That, that doesn't actually even make any sense. Yeah. But yet people tend to say things like that, snap out of it, don't be so negative. And it's not that the person is trying to not feel or not or be cold or closed off. It's just that, because the thing is, is, is there anything we can just snap out of, whether it be good or bad? And because when people say, don't be so negative, and in people being saying don't be so negative i find those people that are negative again that's and i don't believe they should stay in that negative place for too long but sometimes initially that's their way of being able that's how they're dealing with it how they're processing it and hopefully they will start to come out and come through that and they that's not a place they stay but you tend to find people a lot of the times just with a lack of understanding because it's almost like if they knew what the person was like before, they want that old person back. Or if they, they just, they themselves don't want to hear it or deal with it. So they just, they kind of like push those things onto 
other people and then by them telling somebody to just snap out of it or don't be so negative that could be the person that could be them trying to like you said trying to force them out of that too quickly and that could push them into overwhelm exactly um so this is a double-sided coin because um, a person's trauma doesn't justify them inflicting trauma on somebody else. Mm -hmm. So it's one thing to have compassion and understanding that like, for example, if, if you were abused by your parents, have compassion and understanding that they experienced abuse and then inflicted it on you because that was what they knew and abuse is actually never okay or justified and so it's one thing to have understanding for somebody's trauma but it still doesn't necessarily justify behaviors that are harmful to others so I just want to acknowledge that, um, that, yeah, if they're seeming down or negative, um, that's something that's okay to excuse, but it's not okay to excuse harmful behaviors. Um, I've been really enjoying the show, I May Destroy You on HBO. Um, well, the second person to talk to me about that. Yeah, it's a... Uh, it's such a wonderful depiction of trauma, but trigger warning because it has really explicit sexual assault scenes. Right. Um, and the whole show is about um, the character recovering from sexual assault. Um, but what I love in that show is how understanding her best friend is of the trauma that she's endured and the best friend describes it to one of their other friends as um, I think she says like your brain is like a computer and when it's overloaded it's not going to function properly that's exactly what's happening to her right now and so the best friend is being really gentle and understanding with her as she's recovering from this trauma um, and that's just a great example of how we can show up for people that we know have endured trauma to really come to them with understanding and compassion. Right, and so do, so people that go through trauma and them not, and so, so for people that have gone through trauma and those people that don't really express their feelings, like we are saying that like they, they, they they don't feel is that where disassociation comes from and associated disorder and the associated disorders is that where that would come from yeah so dissociation is really a spectrum and so everybody dissociates to some extent um so an everyday version of dissociation might look like just zoning out or um a lot of times we may have the experience of like driving and um even though you kind of lose focus on the road around you you still end up safely at your destination so those are everyday ways we dissociate but dissociation is also um 
a coping mechanism when we experience trauma. And so this would be more in the freeze category of fight, flight, or freeze. So when you dissociate, when your brain dissociates during a trauma, um, it's letting go of what's happening around you in order to protect you from what's happening. So that might mean you're experiencing an immense amount of pain and your brain is protecting you from the pain. Um, it might mean that uh, your, your brain is taking you out of a sexual assault. Um, and so with dissociative disorders, um, there's dissociative amnesia where you have chunks of memory that are missing. Um, a lot of times that looks like not remembering events that feel important in your life. Um, and then there's uh, depersonalization or derealization, which you really feel intensely in your body. It's kind of a feeling of um, your brain and your body being disconnected um, and feeling like you're not real or you're in a dreamlike state. And then you have dissociative identity disorder, which um, was formerly multiple personality disorder. Um, but as we've destigmatized it and we have more of an understanding for it, uh, we really understand that dissociative identity disorder um, stems from complex PTSD. And typically, in almost all cases, it stems from really complex trauma during childhood. Um, so a lot of times that happens with childhood sexual abuse uh -huh. or any other type of uh, abuse that a child may have experienced. And so dissociative identity disorder is when there are two or more kind of uh, personas that exist in the world. So um, I think of it as having these different parts of yourself and these different parts of yourself function as your physical self. Um, but when we think of it from the case of uh, multiple personality disorder, like they would think of it as these parts that take on different personalities and uh, they would be alters. It isn't always to that extreme. Um, and so that's why there's been a lot of research and shifting um, in the past few years. Right, because I know like, it's interesting that you mentioned multiple personalities because it's something that a lot of people make, make light of. And uh, the only experience of it is either some of these horror movies that we've seen or the uh, one that I saw many years ago was um, Sally Field's movie, Sybil. Yes. And, and other than that, you don't really hear anything of it. You just see that's what you see. So that's actually, I'm glad that you actually touched on that. that that's very interesting. And um, as one of the things that I wanted to ask you about as well when it comes to disassociation and um, trauma is perinatal mood disorder. How does that differ from postpartum depression or does it? Well, 
A perinatal mood disorder encompasses all of the mood disorders that could happen postpartum. Um, so there, that encompasses postpartum depression, postpartum anxiety, postpartum psychosis, um, and postpartum PTSD. Okay, that's interesting because I'd never heard of that because we just all like postpartum, don't quite understand it. And I think people don't want to understand it. There's, I think there's many things about mental health that to be honest, people don't want to understand because it scares them. Yeah. So they don't want to understand it. So yeah. So that so that's interesting that there are actually different aspects of it. Right. And so, and I just want to finish up by asking: Do you think that as a person that has gone through trauma, has that made you a more effective therapist? I definitely think so. Um, I think when you're a therapist who has your own lived experience, mm -hmm. I always have to be especially careful that I'm not putting my experience on someone else mm -hmm. because trauma looks different for everyone because everyone has a different nervous system. And so everyone's nervous system will, will uh, care for their trauma differently. Um, but I think sometimes, uh, it's a sigh of relief for somebody to hear their therapist say, like, I've actually been there yeah. and to see that, um, as a therapist, you've gotten to the other side. Yeah. I know that I'll be a lifer in therapy because I just love it and it helps me function optimally for my clients. Um, but I've also been to the other side of recovery and I'm past that intense point that I was once at. Right. Yeah, because I, I do find that's helpful because like for myself, I know that I, I've been in therapy a couple of times and I just felt like they couldn't relate to anything I was saying and they were yeah. textbook answers and the empathy felt like it was something that was learned as opposed to something that was felt. Yes. So, yeah, so I would have to say that, and not to say that people that haven't been through anything can't be good therapists. Of course. That, throw that out there. But um, I just find that I like to ask that question just because some people try to just complete, completely not add any of their personal experiences when dealing with their clients, and, and that's okay. But from the client's perspective, I think people want to know that you're real. Yeah, I am not the therapist that you would come to if you wanted a Freud robot, um, because I definitely bring my personality and humor into the room, and I find the clients that fit with that really fit with it and um, it works really well. But some people do want the therapist robot and to just feel like their therapist does not exist outside the room. Right. That's just not who I am. <laughs> yeah, and I don't know if I could, I 
been with one of those therapists and just like, okay, yeah, yeah, this not. <laughs> I, might, I, may, I felt like I may as well be speaking to the wall. And just like, yes, and if that's the case, then it's cheaper. Yeah, just, exactly. Yeah. <laughs> like, let me just stay home, stare at the wall and talk to it. It can save myself a lot of money. But um, and finally, what I wanted to ask you is, you post put this on your website. What is healing anyway? Because it's one of those things where we, I think it's one, again, one of these new fine things that we, um, like you mentioned earlier on about now we um, misappropriation, misappropriating the term mindfulness. Um, and I feel a little bit like we're doing that with the word healing. Because everything, we just need to heal. You need to get your healing. Everything is about healing. It's just like, okay, stop now. Yeah, I think you're right. Um... And I probably put that on my website a while ago and forgot about it. <laughs> but I think healing is such a spectrum and there's no such thing as being fully healed. Mm. I like the word healing in a way because it, it suggests like the closing up of a wound. Okay. Mm. And we may have the scars left behind from the wound. We're not gonna forget that the wound exists, mm -hmm. but it helps the wound to not be so painful. And I think you're right that healing has really become one of those buzzwords like on Instagram and on, you can't, you can't throw a stone and not see healing on a therapist <laughs> website. Um, but the way I think of it is, as a process that is never going to be completely finished because no one is a perfect human. Um, I really like this metaphor of the geode that on the outside of a geode, um, it just looks like a rock and the rock has been through a lot. You'll see the markings on the rock and all of the imperfections, but inside the geode, it's crystal. And that's all that I'm trying to help people do as they heal is to make the crystals more vibrant to themselves so that they can then show those crystals to the world. Right, right. Oh, that's great. Elise, this has been, I've learned so much and it's been a pleasure sharing and just talking to you. This has been great. So thank you for your time. Thank you for your energy. Thank you for your wisdom. So thank you for joining us, Elise. Yeah, thank you so much. You're welcome. So Elise, before I forget and before we fully sign off, what is next for you and where can people find you? So I actually have a podcast coming out hopefully in October. Um, it's with my colleague, Samantha Montemayor. And it's called Reading the Backs of Giants, where we actually go through the history of psychology and uh, pick apart some of the problematic nature of the field. Um, so we're literally going to be reading, like in the RuPaul drag race sense, uh, the giants of the psychology field. Um, and so for that, you can follow us at Reading Giants on Instagram. And then uh, you can follow me at Moving Parts Psychotherapy on Instagram. 
And I also have a website, www.movingpartspsychotherapy.com. Excellent. Thank you so much. So guys, yeah. you here. go over to her podcast, hopefully starting in October, but I'm sure you'll be putting news about the launch on your Instagram page. And yes. Reading. Reading the backs of giants. Reading the backs of giants. <laughs> that, that in itself is making me <laughs> I'm going to pick up my phone any minute now and I'm going straight to that Instagram page because it sounds like it's going to be interesting. And anybody wanting to know the history of psychotherapy, head on over to Reading the Backs of Giants. Great stuff. Thank you so much, Elise. Yeah, thank you. Take care now. Okay. Bye. Thank you for spending time with us. We're already looking forward to the next episode of This is Conversations with Allison J. The journey to here. Until next time, honor, respect, and blessings to you all. If you want to connect, visit allisonj.net. That's A-L-I-S-O-N-J-A-Y-E.net. Allison with one L, as she is the one and only.